The popular conception is the CEO gets to do whatever they want, and the reality is the CEO gets to do nothing that they want. The fact of human nature is that people will do what you want, but only to a lower level. They will do to a higher level what they want. And so the real role, the way to really succeed and excel as a CEO, is to get people to want to do what you want to do. Because when you can have them believe in the idea even stronger than you believe in the idea, they will perform their best work. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers, welcome back to Scaling Clean, the podcast that gathers company building and management tips for the most accomplished leaders in clean tech. Today, I welcome Jeff Wolf, who is what I will call an OC or an original clean techer. Jeff's a proud serial clean tech entrepreneur. He's led three companies and two of them he founded. His work has spanned solar installation, EV fast charging, and investment considerations for Shell New Ventures. His current company is Veloce Energy, which offers easy-to-install, productized EV fast-charging infrastructure that's designed to speed the electrification of America's vehicle fleet. In Jeff's perspective, you Scaling Clean listeners are going to access views shaped by several multis, if you will, multi-sector, multi-region, and multi-size of companies. So strap in for some well-earned wisdom on building and running successful companies. Jeff, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mike. Let me start with your background. We always like to do this. How would you summarize your career as a corporate leader? Uh, su- summarizing it is hard. Uh, d- diverse, a uh, bit of continuous roller coaster, edge focused, shall we say? It's been it's been an interesting ride. I moved from my my second job out of college was designing buildings. Uh, so I've I've designed buildings as an engineer. And then I went into solar and, you know, designed solar systems and became a contractor and installed systems, went through some consulting phases there in business. Uh, and now, and now we're a manufacturer designing products. So my arc has taken me from uh, designing buildings, integrated other people's products to designing the products that other people integrate. And I think that that's, that's pushing that the envelope of productization is, yeah, I've, I've spent my career kind of on the edge of industry. Fortunately, unfortunately. Put a through line on that. Let's say you're, what would be the first few sentences of your biography if you were going to, if I was going to write it? So, you know, serial clean tech entrepreneur uh, focused on the built environment, driving change in the built environment focused on addressing climate change. Talk to me about the first time you were somebody's boss. Looking back now, what mistakes did you make and how have you changed your leadership style as a result of that over the years? Well, I, I didn't make every mistake possible, but I've made um, a pretty good share of them. One of the problems in management in America, I firmly believe, is that no very few people are taught to be managers. You know, MBA students are not taught to be managers. Uh, manager candidates are not taught to be managers. There's very few good management schools, management training uh, programs. Uh, most people just are anointed manager. So, you know, management means dealing with people and um, 
we're not very good with dealing with people uh, often in our personal lives or and, and certainly not in our business lives. Uh, it requires a, an incredible amount of honesty with other people to treat them with respect and and uh, to communicate well. So I made a lot of mistakes in terms of uh, not knowing how to communicate well, not uh, communicating well, uh, not expecting people to perform to the level that they could or should or needed to, making accommodation for people where accommodation was uh, negative for performance of the company and negative for their own performance as well. When you don't have somebody, when you don't require somebody to do their job, you're training them to not do their job rather than training them to do their job. So it's, it's really a, a lot of the mistakes I made were um, personnel related, I think, which is very common. Other mistakes I made were sometimes not following my gut. I've got a pretty good sense, by far from perfect, but a pretty good sense of where businesses need to go, why they need to go there. And uh, sometimes I let, I, rather than building consensus, I let others sway against my better judgment. And uh, it's a difficult balance to learn. When do you trust your gut? And when do you listen to the great people you've hired? And, Amen. Uh, Boy, that is <laughs> well said. Very well said. Okay. I'm going to jump ahead here because that was such a good answer. But let's say you quit your job tomorrow. You become a lecturer at a local university's MBA program. Your first lecture is going to be three pieces of management advice learned the hard way. How would you distill that mistake and lesson pattern you just went through? How would you boil it down to its three most important lessons for people who want to be a gel for wolf in five years, 10 years? First, first is to have confidence in yourself. If you have confidence in yourself, it's amazing what you can do. Uh, pretty much my entire career since founding Gross Solar and, and including the founding of Gross Solar was because I had enough confidence in myself to leave and go do something, to try something. And it's, it's amazing how many people will stay in a bad job because they don't have the confidence in themselves. Very talented people who don't have the confidence in themselves to, to just leave and go do it. Um, so have confidence in yourself is, is first. Second is is learn how to communicate. Learn, learn what it means to treat people with respect, which does not mean saying thank you and you're welcome and nice pleasantries. It means treating people as knowledgeable professionals and communicating to them when they do great things and communicating to them when they do not so great things and working to have them do as bed, as, as well as they can. Uh, so real focus on 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 you know what what we call HR and I call honest relationships. And then the third is is um, something I, I took a took took me a long time to learn, which is to try and have some balance. Try and have some balance, which is very hard. I, I had uh, remarkably little balance at, at Gross Solar, and 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 it, it aged me and and made me perform not as well as I could. I'm taking a very different tact now. I I I, I run now, which is one of the more surprising things I've ever started in my life, but it's very good for my my mental balance. And and uh, make sure you continue to do something for yourself as you drive hard in the company. Well, that I'll tell you, Jeff, you are the one who's directing this interview because these answers just command that we go to a particular question. We've got on the list here. So I'm going to go to the last question I usually ask. So in terms of your day in, day out, week in, week in performance, are there practices, habits that you have picked up, tried, and found are really valuable for keeping Jeff Wolf's performance 
at as consistently high a level as possible. Could be big, could be small. I'm really interested in collecting these things from people in your shoes. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a hard question, and I wish I wish I was a um, a more disciplined, programmed executive. I'm I'm not. So the, the things I try and do is I schedule things. If I'm going to get something done, I schedule it. If it's on my calendar, I will likely do it. If it's on my calendar, I likely will not do it. So I really schedule, and that, and that's you know running. I have a calendar place for dinner every night because that blocks out from other people disturbing my dinner because I work across multiple time zones. And I make sure I have dinner. So that's probably the biggest thing. I single thing I do is I schedule, I schedule my life, the parts that I want to get done. I'm seeing a lot in terms of the science around sleep. And there's now an emergent science around times of the day that certain individuals are best equipped to do certain things. Have you found yourself a night owl or a morning person? You know, there's a, there's a belief in many quarters that if you get up at five or five 30 in the morning, you're more likely to become a billionaire. Not sure how true that is, but have you looked at and experimented with the clock? And have you found that certain things work for Jeff Wolf in that respect? I, I've been a night owl my entire life pretty much. And uh, uh, it's, it's sometimes hard being a night owl in a daytime world. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it, it, I've gotten, either a little better or a little worse. I'm not sure how you define it, but uh, it used to be my, my best hours, my most productive hours are 10 to 2, p.m. to a.m. That was when I could really, really focus, no disruptions, and really crank a lot of a lot of great work out. I would often reread it in the morning to make sure that it was great work, but I, it was, that, was, that was often my, my best work for the day. I've, I've backed that off a little bit now. Evenings are still where I can really focus and, and tune in, and my brain seems to be most alert and aware. Um, I can get up whatever other morning and do whatever I need to do. But uh, if I had to uh, program my day and, and it was Jeff's world, it'd be probably, you know, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. I, I I have experienced much the same things as, as you're reporting here. All right. Now go back to the top of the question list here. Your mentors. Who are your most important mentors? Why were they important? What did you learn from them? Yeah, probably my one of my most important mentors who, who made a big impact on me was my high school science teacher. Long ago, really kind of opened my eyes to science, turned me on. It was he was a biology professor, PhD teaching at a high school, PhD of ecology teaching at a high school in the seventies, so pretty well ahead of his time, and 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 just a, a great, quiet, uh, strong personality who really led me into you know believing in interest in science and believing I could we could do science. Um, so he was a very, very important mentor. I had had one one person at Grow Solar who um, the, the the VCs we had suggested that we hire him, and uh, it wasn't a mandate, but it was a strong suggestion, shall we say? And uh, <laughs> uh, brought, brought 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 Steve in, and um, uh, he had been serially successful in a bunch of different industries, uh, things like first uh, catalog computer sales, that kind of thing. Um, and and having his his view and and uh, experience was was real helpful to me. Sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in in not a negative growth way, but a negative information way. Uh, such as the one day we were sitting in my office today, and he says to me, Jeff, I've never seen an industry this hard. At which point I realized that it wasn't just that I was an idiot; it was actually we were doing really hard things. 
I'm guessing you were into renewables before 90% of the people who will listen to this interview. What drew you to clean energy and what has kept you in the space? I'm guessing I was into renewables probably before 90% of people were born on this interview. <laughs> uh, sad to say. Um, I first got into renewables in the uh, early 70s. My first real hardcore experience was I built a hot water solar collector in 1973 in my side yard uh, as a young teenager as response to the first Arab oil embargo. When, when I said, why are we importing oil and having it uh, misshape our political process at that time even for oil from this foreign country? Why don't we make it ourselves? And, you know, the hot water collector didn't uh, work well at all. <laughs> um, but that was my, my first foray in 1973 into, uh, in, into solar. And uh, that's why I became a mechanical engineer. It, back in that time, you became a mechanical engineer or a chemical engineer to go into solar because you made either coatings for hot water solar collectors or you made the hydraulic systems for hot water systems. So I became a mechanical engineer because of that. What are the biggest changes that you've witnessed in this space since you started? All of them. <laughs> I mean, That's why know, I use the I, word biggest. I mean, Mike, when I, when I started, we were selling um, solar systems, PV systems, and hot water systems. We were selling PV systems, uh, residential PV systems. Everything had a battery. Uh, a large system, a, a system we celebrated over was half a kilowatt, and we sold systems for $18 per watt cash up front. So the, the arc of cost reduction has been staggering just staggering I, I bought panels at great prices five dollars a watt and then we got them at three dollars and thirty cents a watt you know what are they now somewhere between 35 and 50 cents a watt the the the, the price curve decline has been staggering the technology uh, uh efficiency increases have been have been incredible you know we we, we bought some of the best panels on the planet uh, 75 watt uh, bp solar panels uh, which now look like you know arm bracelet terms um <laughs> yeah it's 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 and the whole installation process i mean you know so, so everything has become much more productized and it's that's part of what's really driven driven us with is, is we saw the productization of solar and one of my co-founders was very involved in that uh, at first solar as well and uh, so it's been the productization of of energy systems and the, and the productization of the built environment which have really i think revolutionized a lot of different industries as well as renewables. The changes you've seen in the space, the big trend lines, how have they affected the job of running clean economy companies? So the the job of running clean economy companies has got, gotten, I think, more operationally focused. As we've different prices down, um, you know, half pennies matter now. Uh, and when half pennies matter, you really need to look at... Um, operational efficiencies not just product efficiencies and and so the um the, the the job has become much more operationally detail operationally focused you've got to be a great operator in order to uh really succeed you can't just have a great idea go back to that classroom that we discussed and in this hypothetical course your second lecture is called what makes up the role of the successful clean economy CEO? What are you going to tell your students? Well, the first thing I tell my students is that the popular conception is the CEO gets to do whatever they want. And the reality is the CEO gets to do nothing that they want. 
Um, That's the money quote right there, Sam. We're going to lead. We're going to lead this interview with that quote. That's great. Jeff, continue. The the, the fact is that uh, uh, many CEOs feel like they're dictators and they mandate and they they uh, direct. Um, and and the, the fact of human nature is that people will do what you want, but only to a, a, a lower level. They will do to a higher level what they want. And so the real role, the way to really succeed and excel as a CEO is to get people to want to do what you want to do. Because when you can have them believe in the idea even stronger than you believe in the idea, they will, they will perform their best work and the company will do best. So the role of the CEO really is to not lead so much as it is to create leaders who want to follow the vision of the company. What proportionality would you assign to culture setting, operations, sales, marketing, the raising money? What proportion would you assign the various parts of the CEO's job? Well, it, it really varies a lot from company to company. company. I mean, one of the, one of the fun things about being a CEO is that is that the job changes a lot usually over time. We're very fortunate at Volitri to have a, a, a team of four co-founders, and and that's given us all the strength, and it's allowed me to really focus on fundraising. So in 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 Volitri, I spend probably well a little bit less now because our, our Series A is finally coming together, but. At, at times, for most most of the time, Volitra has been around 75% or more of my time on fundraising. Um, huge percentage. But that's what's driven our ability to, to actually raise funds pretty quickly. The rest is coordinating and making sure that everybody else is uh, on point, on vision, uh, executing their roles, and um, you know, occasionally providing advice and counsel to the other consummate professionals who we have on the team. Is building a company or running an existing company the more challenging job? Depends on the status of both of them. You know, I, 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 they, they both have their challenges. They're very, very different. Um, when you're building a company, you're less worried about all the details. Uh, they, they, you, you, need, you need to build the hull of the boat before you can polish the chrome on the top deck. Whereas when you're running an existing company, you've got to you know keep on patching that hull while you continue to polish the chrome on top. A lot more detail work in in running an existing company, paying attention to a lot more details. Not that the details going to evaporate when you're starting a company, but um, you, you've got to form, build that foundation first. Uh, personally, I'm much more of a builder than an operator. Uh, I have operated. I can operate. I can operate well. Uh, it doesn't give me the pleasure that building does. A previous answer kind of led to this question about hiring. I hear from every guest we've talked to so far, without exception, that hiring is one of the most challenging parts of running a company. What have you learned about hiring, particularly at the C-suite level? So hiring at any level, the biggest challenge that, that I think people have in general is they don't make it a priority. Uh, people are more willing to complain about not having enough staff than they are to make it one of their top three priorities every day to go out and and, and find the people, interview the people, move them through the process. And, and so the, the the first thing at any level is to make it a priority 
to execute on it. If you need the person, it has to be one of your top three priorities. You need to work on it every day. Uh, it, it's 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 not a side thing you need to do when you're free. It's it's one of your one of your important pieces. At the C-suite, you know, I think before you even go out to hire a, a, another uh, member of your C-suite, you've got to make sure your culture is right, and and that and that you understand the culture. And we really lead with the culture. And people sometimes say, well, you know, Jeff, what if there's a great candidate who doesn't agree with your, you know, some of your philosophies? It's like, well, then they're a great candidate for somebody else. Uh, if, if the team doesn't have a common culture, whatever it is, whatever it is, uh, then th- they're not going to be a team. And if they're not a team, they're not going to function at the level that they need to. When it comes to running a company, what is more important? What you do, what you choose to do, or what you choose not to do? Absolutely, both. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's no way to pick one of those. Depends upon the day and the situation. If if you never do anything, then that's that's disaster, right? And if you do everything that comes into your brain, uh, that's also disaster. What's important is to not get locked into an action, especially in an early stage of a company. Not get locked into an action and feel like you can never change your mind. You can always change your mind, and sometimes it's really important not to change your mind, and sometimes it's really important to change your mind. But and, and not to revisit every decision every day, but but it is important to have the mindset to question even fundamental decisions as you're building the company. In your conversations with suppliers, with customers over the years, and those vendors and customers who are working in ma- more mature companies, not in clean economy, what's been your observation about the difference in running a clean economy company versus a company in a more mature sector? Well, most of those mature companies are are larger. And so most of the people you deal with are simply doing their job. It's rare to find a large company that has a great culture of mission and vision other than deliver a product on time every day. I mean, that's not a vision, right? That's a job. And and, and so it's, it's very hard to find suppliers who are kind of culturally aligned and, and have the same uh, priority, same drive, same motivations. So in terms of clean tech, not climate solutions, but just clean tech, are you a clean tech optimist or a clean tech pessimist? And why? So clean tech, I, I, I'm a huge optimist on technology. The technology advances that you know I've seen and some of which I've helped to drive in my career have gone far faster than anybody predicts. You know, I read, I read analyst reports. Not a lot, but I read some. I read summaries. And I don't read them to know what the numbers are this year. I read them year over year to know what the, the, the first derivative is, so to speak. What's the speed of change of the analyst numbers? Because in clean tech, one report over another report next year, they're always increasing their projections for speed. How fast do they increase in those projections? If you look mm-hmm. at electric vehicle adoption, uh, you look at EV charging, which we're in. You know, a few years ago, Bloomberg was predicting eighty-two percent of all charging happens at home. Well, I'm quite sure that's wrong, and they're finally, you know, becoming convinced of that. And their numbers of home chargers are going down. The numbers of public chargers going up. The speed of adoption of EVs is is you know through the roof compared to what they were predicting five years ago. 
And so it's it's that rate of change of uh, prediction that I look at to, to see what the future is. And the rate of change for the, you know, I've been in clean tech since 1998 uh, uh, and, and before in some ways. And, and the rate of change has never met expectations. It has pretty much every year always exceeded them. So from a technology point of view, we don't have all the tech we need, but we have most of the tech we need. And we have plenty of tech to keep ourselves very busy, very gainfully busy uh, uh, <laughs> while the other tech comes forward. We don't we don't need uh, a silver bullet. We need about a silver buckshot. And we've got most of that silver buckshot uh, in, in, in hand already. Nice. Well, Jeff Wolf, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I have found you to be every bit the wonderful guest as you have been a private conversationalist with me over the years. I think this sector owes you and people like you a lot. I think Tom Weirich's book was really kind of a flag plant that we have people like you in this sector that we're standing on their shoulders. And it's what's really cool about the sector is we get to be among the people who've really been at it for a long time, mixing actively with the new entrants. So I, I'm just grateful to you for the work you've done, for the leadership in the industry. And thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. I know this is going to be one of our better episodes. Well, Mike, it's always a pleasure to chat on or off the record. And it, it's great to see new people continue to pour in at ever faster rates into clean tech. And I, I too stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, we, I didn't invent this, this whole thing by any means. There's a lot of people who came before me who helped put us where we are today. This is Scaling Clean, a production of Tigercom, and I'm Mike Casey. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to our show free anywhere you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.